Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Event Industry News Podcast. My name is James Dixon, and as always, I wish you a very good morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever or wherever you tune in and access today's podcast from. Um, and uh, I don't know when this is going to be published, probably in the next few weeks. This is my first podcast recording of the year, and it seems odd to sort of say it now, knowing that somebody may listen to this in a few weeks' time, but Happy New Year to everybody. I've not been behind the microphone or in front of the laptop in this particular sort of setting um, for a few weeks now since before Christmas. So a very happy new year. Uh, and, you know, it's never too late to say I hope everybody had a lovely sort of little break over the uh, over the festive period. Um, and on with the first podcast of 2023. And I'm excited that the first podcast of the year is with two guests because it always makes my job easier. There are people who are far more qualified than me to be able to do the sensible talking. And I just ask, you know, the odd question here and there over the next 30 minutes or so. My guests today are responsible for a new white paper titled How Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Could Radically Transform the Events Industry. It is a compact but jam-packed 14-page uh, document that I've had the privilege of reading over the last couple of days or so um, ahead of today's recording. Um, so let's get our guests on. They are from the Clusivity organisation. We'll find out more about the organisation as we progress in today's podcast. And they are the directors, Mira Somji and Andrew Carney. Welcome, both of you, to the uh, Event Industry News podcast. Thank you, James, so much for having us on this morning and Happy New Year. Yes, thank you. Never too late to say it. I believe. Never too late. It's never never too late. Um, before we dive into some of the content in this in this white paper that I mentioned in the uh, introduction, there um, always important, I think, to get a little bit of context about professional backgrounds, especially when we're talking about documents that have been written um, of this sort of nature. Mira, let's begin with you first of all. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional background, and what led you to this moment in your life. Absolutely. Well, um, <laughs> this particular moment, we launched Clusivity actually exactly a year ago today. So we are celebrating our one year. Congratulations. <laughs> um, and we'll tell you more, more about it in a moment. But before Clusivity, I worked for an organization called Smart Expo that offered data and analytics to event organizers. Um, and previous to that, I was actually a consultant to the industry with Plural strategy group. So I've always been sort of in and around the events industry, offering data, offering support to organisers to help them make more data-driven decisions. Um, and I've been very fortunate to work in different chapters of my life with Andrew, who is the co-founder of Clusivity. What a lovely link. It's like you've done this before. Um, so <laughs> Andrew, on that note, uh, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so very much like Mira, uh, my background is also as a bit of a data nerd. So I started my career in strategy consulting with AMR International and then uh, as a founding member of Plural Strategy, um, which both strategy consultancies that uh, work uh, not exclusively, but um, extensively with events organizers. Um, and then um, also like Mira, I, I then co-founded Smart Expo um, which is a data-driven price optimization tool for the events industry. Um, and then, yeah, happy anniversary. One year ago today, Mira and I launched Clusivity. Absolutely. Well, very apt that we're recording this this today then. And I should, should for context, point out this is the 19th of January. So, you know, there's the birthday. You can add it to your calendars, everybody, every year. Um, <laughs> 
So, so let, let's dive into this now. And once again, we just we'll just give the title again for people who, who, who you know may have forgotten it when I mentioned it in the introduction. How diversity, equity, and inclusion could radically transform the events industry. And something you mentioned there, both in your in your sort of professional um, overviews, was was data. And I noticed that that that, that, that does play. Uh, a key role, I think, in, in, in much of this white paper. Um, you know, in the early stages, it says that data holds the power to move us away from gut feel or wishful thinking, which is something that historically the event industry had to rely on, didn't it, before we lived in an age where so much data was available. Um, let's look a little bit, first of all, at what prompted this, Mira. What, why, why was the decision taken to actually go to the efforts that were involved to produce a document like this? Yes, so the the real purpose behind producing this white paper was to refresh and update um, a piece of data analysis Andrew and I ran in 2020. It was the summer when George Floyd had been murdered and many black professionals in the industry were openly and bravely sharing their experiences of racism on LinkedIn and with their colleagues. And at that point, Andrew and I felt strongly that we had the opportunity and also the responsibility of participating in this conversation with the skills that we had of data analysis. So we ran the numbers on just how racially diverse the industry was. And we produced um, a paper, we ran an event with leaders from Informa, from Reed, from Clarion, talking about how they plan to drive change within their organizations. The feedback to that research and that event was actually the, um, the origin story of, of inclusivity. We felt so, um, we felt so humbled and, excited about the opportunity to help the industry improve, become more inclusive, that we set the gears in motion to launch what is a data and analytics platform to help organizations measure and take a more data-driven approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. So I've taken you back a couple of years, James, but really this was a a follow-up to research that we had done two years ago. Mm. And and I, I suppose one of the data questions that, that I'd like to ask, obviously, so much so much of the data that we capture in the events industry, Andrew, is 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 very much related to, you know, sales data in trade shows, visitor data, visitor numbers, visitor demographics, etc., etc., etc. How much data actually is there? Even though we know there is a lot of data in the events industry, do we have enough relevant data relevant to the particular topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion? It was interesting. I think it was one of the things we looked into, as Mira said, when we started this work first in 2020, and then when we refreshed it this year, um, we looked into other other studies out there that can help answer this question for us about how racially diverse, uh, and also what's the level of gender diversity mm-hmm. in the events industry. Um, and basically, we, we didn't find a lot of information. So we said, you know, we've We've got our background analysing lots of data. Why don't we go out ourselves um, and take an opportunity to take a look at, uh, at what some of the statistics are? 
um, and then shine a light on some of these stories. And I think one of the things that we feel is really important is bringing together both data, but then some real life stories. And that's what we've tried to do in the white paper, try mm -hmm. to bring the data to shine a light on some of the issues, but then also um, tell some stories to say, okay, this is what this looks like in the real world. These are some of the experiences people uh, are having. And this is some of the opportunities that we've seen from organizations that have, have taken a, a forward thinking approach to this. And it's what I'm deliberately not going to do today is even though I've got a copy of the, the white paper in front of me with my notes on there, I'm, I'm not going to work chronologically because I think it's important that after this, people actually go away and, and download this, get access to it and actually read it chronologically themselves because it does tell a story. It, it, it is very well thought out in terms of its layout. And I've read a lot of these um, types of paper. Um, and something you mentioned there is, is key to it is that it's not just full of, of, of statistics and pie charts and graphs. A lot of it is made up of these these quotes from senior leaders, from people within the industry. Um, and the reason I say I'm not going to work chronologically, because one of the things I noticed was the latter part of the, um, the paper is a quote, um, as audiences across all, all shows get younger and more diverse, it's really important for us as organisers to continue to drive change through innovation to stay relevant. And, and as soon as I read that sentence, I thought that was really key because what we are as organisers should be reflecting what our audiences want. And as our audiences, regardless of the type of event we're running, be it a gig, you know, a trade show, a conference, if our audiences are diverse, we need people running those events to understand the audiences, don't we? I completely agree. And I'm so glad you've pinpointed that quote from Michael Adenia, who is now the Chief Operating Officer of the UK Black Business Show. Mm. It provides this tremendous case study of the opportunity for event professionals if they reflected, as you say, reflected the populations they were serving and developed new products, developed new events. The UK Black Business Show only launched in 2017. And in the 2022 edition, they had 10,000 attendees. Mm. These are growing audiences that are hungry for innovative, fresh content and events. And those who can tap into that are, are you know, <laughs> are, are going to benefit. That's why the title of this white paper really is about radically transforming the industry. It's not just about what, how diverse from a gender and race point we are, but actually what we're missing out on if we don't take the opportunity to drive change through innovation. Mm. Well, one thing I, I, want, I did want to ask today as a sort of a straight out question is, is there's a uh, again, I'll a, a reference a sentence that's in the report. Likewise, data on the demographics of the events industries is the only way to assess whether we're making progress. Um, and I was, I suppose, curious to ask who defines progress? You know, where where is the the sort of the textbook that says this is what progress is? How, how do we actually define what that is, Andrew? Yeah, I think... Uh... We, we believe passionately in data as a, as a way of, uh, of showing that, because I think um, it's quite easy to, as we said at the start of the show, rely on gut feel and the feeling that, you know, we're doing, we're doing some good things yeah. um, to try and make change. Um, but the only way you can really define whether that change is, is, is really hitting home and that it is by looking at the data and saying, okay, are we 
Are we making progress on making our events more diverse? Are we seeing our leadership teams become more diverse? Hmm. Um, are we seeing the industry as a whole benefit from the opportunities that diversity provides? Um, hmm. And I, I think uh, though obviously the, <laughs> there is there is no perfect yardstick, but what we're trying to do with this white paper that we've we've obviously now refreshed um, from, from 2020, and we hope to continue to do so in the future, is is to provide a kind of uh, roadmap for where the industry's come from, where it's going, and and what it could look like if it takes advantage of these opportunities. Hmm. James, can I jump in then on your question about measuring progress? Because it's quite, (laughs) it's a big question. And I think one way Andrew and I think about this is demographic data is almost your output. It is what the organisation looks like as a result of its practices and policies and culture. And so for us, it's an indicator of progress because if you are seeing more senior women leaders, more senior women leaders from other underrepresented groups, it means you're doing something right on the inside. It means your culture is inclusive. It means people feel a strong sense of belonging. It means people feel safe to report when they don't um, have a good experience and they know that that will be taken seriously and that will be, um, and they will be, you know, safe in that Mm. culture to do so. Um, It means they can progress. It means they feel their work is valued. And so that's sort of how we go about understanding progress. Mm. And, and I guess anybody who who's ever dealt with data and, and if we work in the events industry, the, the reality is that all of us have dealt with data at some level at some point in the last few years is, is that I suppose until we build up enough of it. And if we're only just now using the data that's available to start looking at this particular subject from a data point of view, until you've built up historical data to be able to see, you know, when change happened. It was a bit of a loaded question, so forgive me, but progress ultimately will only be seen, won't we, over a period of time where you have enough historical data to be able to look at, you know, when significant changes happened and when not as many changes happened. Precisely. And I think that's why Andrew and I felt so encouraged by the trend in women leaders in the industry since 2020. You know, it's still very small. Um, The absolute numbers are are, are low. It's only four women in the top job across the top 20 organisers. But that's double what we saw in 2020. And when we spoke to Anne LaFair and Neil Gomez at EasyFairs, we learned about you know what a positive impact that has made across the organization and so there are really encouraging and positive stories to be learned when we do look at trends in data over time mm-hmm. uh, uh, please andrew son yeah i was going to say um, just just to add to that i think one of the other things in in the absence of historical data that we thought uh, can be quite powerful is to look at benchmarks and compare how we're doing against benchmarks. And I think one of the one of the things, one of the data points we shone a light on in the report is that there are currently no minoritized ethnic CEOs among the top 20 exhibition organizers. Mm. Um, and if you compare that, for example, to um, the Fortune 500 largest companies in America, actually there are 66 CEOs now, um, which is up um, significantly in the last few years. So, um, 
we're, we're kind of shining a light that, okay, we don't have historical data, but we know compared to other industries that there are some challenges here that clearly um, need to be addressed. Mm, no, it, it, indeed. Um, again, another point that I wanted to touch on. There's so much I could have pulled out of the report today. And, you know, in, in a 30 minute podcast, we are, um, I suppose, in some respects, going to do the highlights, everybody, so, so, so that you can go off and, and read this yourselves in your own time. But um, it, it, there is an important question that gets asked a lot about, and it's addressed in the report, about how business leaders and senior people can increase the number of new joiners from minoritized ethnic groups but that actually leads in the report into what i get the feeling you're pointing out as an even sort of more important question to ask is how can we retain the people that we've already got and encourage them to stay and that's the first thing that should be addressed before looking at, at how we we bring new people from those groups on board i think i think that's completely right andrew do you want to to expand yeah, sure. on that, that for me I think it's a I think it's a common reaction when you look at diversity statistics to say, okay, we're short on the number of women we should have in our organization, or we're short on the number of minoritized ethnic people. So the the reaction to that is let's go out and hire some people and that will improve our diversity statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've um, through this research, but then also running our software with various um, events companies and companies in other industries. Um, what what we've seen is that that doesn't make a difference if you don't have the right culture in place. Um, and often there are points in your organization where your minoritized groups get to a certain level within the organization, but then they don't make it to the top of the organization because there aren't the right processes, there's not the right culture in place to help them progress through the organization. Um, So I think where we encourage companies to start is by looking um, at at the culture of the organization, at the kind of progression opportunities for your minoritized staff. How do we retain and promote people before you then start looking at your recruitment processes, which is kind of a a backwards way to how many people think about this, but we've, we've seen that's the most powerful. Yeah. Go on, Mira. It looked like you wanted to jump in there. I just feel so strongly about this. <laughs> um, and I think any of your listeners, James, that um, are from any um, underrepresented group, be that women, be that from a minoritized ethnic background, be that from a lower socioeconomic background with a disability or LGBTQ, these listeners will know um, that what, uh, you know, if the culture doesn't feel inclusive to them and if they don't feel like they can progress, they will look elsewhere and they will look to see if they have options um, in other organisations that are demonstrating their commitment to inclusion more. And so it's a it's a key area that organisations actually have under their control. Um, There are really, you know, not easy, but there are really sort of um, (laughs) uh, doable, reasonable um, actions that organisations can take to build more inclusive cultures. and so it's it's something I care care a huge about amount about. Um, and it's worth noting that again, if we're looking at sort of trends in data, two years ago, there were two leaders among the senior leadership teams across the top 20 from a minoritized ethnic background. 
this year when we ran the data, both of those individuals had left their organizations, one to a completely different industry and the other to another organization in the events industry. And as much as that is a small sample size, it tells a really powerful story about um, are we doing the right things to retain? Because otherwise you're just losing the talent that you're investing in and that you've already got. Just playing devil's advocate here, do we know why they left? And is there an argument that both of those senior people were, were trained and developed so well in those organisations that they were offered better positions in the places that they went to? I'd say um, that's probably, <laughs> that, that might be the case. So we don't know why they left. And it's a great, uh, it's a great point to raise because organisations should be tracking why their people are leaving. Absolutely, yeah. If they're not yeah. capturing that data, they're missing out on something very important. Now, if you've invested and they've been offered a better position somewhere else, you know, maybe there's something else you needed to do to keep them and you needed to to um, sort of change the role and, and, and give them what they were asking for. Um, but if they were leaving through negative experiences, it's on you to to find that out and yeah. then to act on it if it's the case. Mm, absolutely. And this, this, I guess, raises from an employment point of view, something that companies are still not very good at, which is speaking to employees when they are leaving, doing, you know, what used to be called an exit interview or something like that, you know, and, and actually that, that bit of data, I suppose, in some respects is as important as all the other data that we're collecting is if, if people are leaving organisations, why are they doing that? Why do they feel they have to do that? Um, and, and I suppose it, that's easier said than done because one of the difficulties is there is that people who are leaving may not feel comfortable being completely honest about it, which I get. But again, that's a cultural thing, isn't it? That's something that over time, if we promote that culture, then hopefully we can get at, you know those, those sort of assessments as people are leaving organisations. And one of the things we've really found is that um, by working with third parties, you actually get employees to open up about these issues. As you say, there's that nervousness um, about being completely honest. Is it going to affect my future career opportunities? It's a small industry. Everyone knows everyone. Um, one of the things that we've uh, really built in when developing our, our software tool has been looking anonymously, uh, capturing data anonymously from individuals. And one of the fascinating things we found is that people, when asked anonymously, really open up. And we've had people through our surveys writing reams of text about their experiences and the challenges that they've faced that is really powerful for organizations because it's information that they had no idea of before. But, uh, but we, we, we give them an opportunity to express that. Well, that's the key word, isn't it? Opportunity in anything. Yeah. You know, if you don't give people the opportunity to do something, then how can you expect any sort of um, change outcome? You know, a new way of thinking. You know, the op op there has to be opportunity in every level, doesn't there, Mira? Precisely. And I mean, you're talking about sort of that exit interview stage. If you give people an opportunity before they get to that point of wanting to leave, if you give them the opportunity to share their concerns um, and um, you've, built a, you've built a psychologically safe place to work where they can share that, you can prevent it. Our metrics in the platform, we do see as predicting um, attrition. 
in a way. We, if you've got low scores in certain areas, that will eventually drive those groups to leave. And so we do see it as a way of preventing um, losing talent um, in a, in a data-driven way. Mm. Well, well, one one thing, going back, you know, to, to, to the report and referencing something that I, I just underlined, and again, it's a really short sentence that is one of those sentences that people could almost, you know, cast over because it comes right at the end of a passage of text. Don't stigmatise people based on schedule. Um, and I underlined that for, for a couple of reasons. You know, you we, we live in a diverse society where people of different religious beliefs who may, you know, require time out of their daily schedule um, to undertake those religious beliefs. We've got single working mothers who may have to do a, a school drop off and a, and, a, and a pick up in the evening. And one thing that I've, I, I feel happened during the pandemic is that a lot of businesses who were maybe um, reluctant to adopt those more sort of flexible approaches because we conduct our business nine to five suddenly realized that, the working from home scenario gave them so many more sort of different ways of thinking. Do, do you think that it, for this particular subject of, of, of DEI, that working from home situation generated by the pandemic has ultimately led to what could be quite a positive outcome as far as schedules are concerned? Yeah, I think we had a we had a we had a, one of the great people we spoke to as part of this was Anne Lafair, who recently got promoted to co-CEO of Easy Fairs. Um, and she really highlighted this, that during the pandemic, the flexible ways of working actually gave opportunities to um, women in particular that were previously constrained by exactly what you said, school drop-offs, um, childcare, et cetera, um, to have more time to potentially find new flexible ways of working. Um, and she cited it as, a, as something that she's seen at Easy Fairs that uh, potentially gave her a chance as well to potentially make it to that co-CEO role. So I think that was really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I just personally, I saw, I saw so many people who suddenly were able to work from home, who suddenly adopted different, totally different working practices. And um, it's something we've spoken about in the podcast before, you know, everybody is unique. Some people work better in the morning. Some people are night owls and they thrash through emails between eight o'clock and 10 o'clock at night. And allowing people to work when they are most effective at working is probably going to help businesses in any industry, not just ours. I completely agree, James. And I think having that attitude and approach is the right one. This isn't about making special, you know, adjustments to certain people it's just allowing everybody to be themselves and flourish in the way that they you know they can and they do and I'm glad you picked up on the word stigma and stigmatize because it points to the difference between a company saying we support flexible work and a company actually following through and meaning that they support flexible work it's not enough to have it in writing if when a working mother or a working father needs to leave, there is sort of silence or eyes rolling or just side comments that are saying, you know, um, are you sure that's a good idea or you're going to miss out on so and so's uh, meeting later? That's not good enough. It needs to be supported. The norms in the office need to be truly supportive and inclusive. Yeah, and I think we, we've all, I can certainly remember examples of working in businesses, you know, going back 15, 16 years it, 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 and in my early 20s where I could recognise what 
I suppose people would call an old school culture, you know, yes. of, of, of people being frowned upon for wanting to walk out the door, bang on five o'clock because their childcare is going to finish, you know, and it's yeah. almost like, oh, she's out the door every day at her contracted time. It, 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 and it was even back then, you know, I, I could recognize it, that, you know, that, that wasn't fair on that person that, that, you know, the sort of the looks or the undercurrent of conversation that was taking place in the office. It, it, it really isn't. I mean, we talk a lot about the word, you know, the fair opportunity, you know, equitable, you know, all, all of these words are going to crop up. And I think um, the most one of the most important things is that I don't know anybody who can't honestly say that they've not witnessed that type of behavior at some point in their working life. Yeah, um, completely agree. And um, I, and I think the other thing with childcare is um, I'm a recent dad and I know, for example, Mira the last couple of weeks has been super supportive of, uh, of some childcare issues that I've had in it. And again, that's given my, my wife's actually traveling with work at the moment. Uh, so it's given her the opportunity to, to go off and have a really important work meeting. So that flexibility makes it makes a massive difference. It's an episode of congratulations today. We've got a first <laughs> we've got new babies. This is this is great. <laughs> it's true, it's true. I personally think Andrew's daughter gives great contributions in our work. <laughs> so it's only it's only been positive from my point of view. No, absolutely. Um, uh, one thing that sort of sprung to mind, having read through this um, yesterday and again this morning before we recorded this, is that um, it, you know, is this the is this the first of many? You know, having produced and gone to the effort of producing this particular document here, it strikes me that as an organization because this is what you do that this needs to become something that's fairly regular and being put out into the industry is there a plan to do this annually biannually what what the sort of plans first of all for this particular and what the hopes for this particular document and then going forward yeah i think you're, you're spot on we really want to celebrate the progress that we're making as an industry and that means refreshing this on an annual basis um, and really highlighting the success stories, highlighting, um, shining a light on where we still need to uh, make change. But the events industry is big, you know, it's not just made up of exhibition organisers, it's there are uh, there are plenty of other types of organisations and segments of the market that I know are interested in this type of data because they've contacted me on the back of this paper. And so the plan is definitely to produce more white papers like this on different segments in the market also. You know, we've added actions at the end of the, the white paper, as you will have seen. Hmm. And those are the ones that the evidence shows makes a really big difference. Flexible work, that sort of thing. But each organisation has its own unique dynamics, issues, people. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. so we'd really encourage people to kind of use these white papers as an opportunity to reflect internally on how they um, on how they compare. Um, so yes, the more the better, in short. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Andrew, just one, one thing to ask you, if, if I may, is that is from a from a data point of view, you know, are, are, you, are you hoping that people will, will read this, but also then get in touch with you? Because I guess the more organisations, employers of all sorts of sizes that you've got communicating with you as an organisation and giving you the data or giving you information about how they're approaching this particular subject, um, that's ultimately going to help everything. So presumably there's an encouragement there for anybody listening to this to, to get in touch with you as an organisation if they want to, to share what their practices are. 
Yeah, exactly. And um, I think we've we've already had a, a couple of organisations that we're working with actually right right now. Um, Diversified Communications, who are in the UK and the US, and then uh, Encore, who are working with us across nine European countries. Um, and um, we're, we're basically helping them uh, generate a score for how they're performing on diversity, equity, and inclusion by running a survey with their employees. Um, to identify what some of the challenges employees are facing, either with progressing through the organization, with the culture of the organization. And then we also look at overall how's the representation versus benchmarks. And I think benchmarks are, are important. So the more data we are able to gather about the industry, the more of a story we're able to tell about how your organization is performing compared with other organizations and where your specific challenges lie. So yes, definitely, we very much appreciate that. Fantastic. Um, we've been talking on the podcast today to Mira Somji and Andrew Carney from Clusivity um, about this fantastic white paper that they've uh, published, how diversity, equity and inclusion could radically transform the events industry. And as I've said a couple of times um, during the podcast today, it, what we've done is is scan over some of the sort of the the, the the bits of information that jumped out of me. But I've no doubt that anybody reading this, the way that it's put together, everyone will take their own sort of highlights away from it. I think it's that type of document that what I've highlighted is not necessarily what other people will will sort of strike through with their pen or or look at on their iPad as they're reading it. Um, so I suppose the important thing to ask, Mira, is, is how do people get hold of it? How do they get in touch with you guys? And how do they, they read this report? Great question. Um, head to the website. We are at clusivity.io. There will be a link there to download the white paper. Um, and there's also a link there to book a chat with me. I would love to speak to any of your listeners about their DEI challenges, goals, plans, ideas. Um, so there's a link, really easy link there to book a call um, and also to download the report. And any any social media handles, LinkedIn groups? Um, where are we on that side of things at the moment? Oh, yeah, we're big on LinkedIn. So give us a follow um, the Clusivity page. We publish pretty interesting pieces about new data that's emerging um, on inclusion more generally. Um, and we have also launched a newsletter today for our, for our birthday. So if you register for that, you will get in your inbox highlights of our content, as well as a link to our Clusivity crossword for those of you who love solving problems as much as we do. Oh, a bit of a bit of a puzzle and a crossword. I've not done a crossword in ages. It tends to be like a holiday thing now. Do you know what I mean? Where you sit down relaxing on holiday and you end up doing a crossword and ten hours of Sudoku. Um and then well, you I wanna bring that, yeah, I want to bring that into your life, James. I want a little bit of crosswording <laughs> every day, a little bit of holiday feel every day. Fantastic. Maybe there needs to be the I'll mention that to the powers that be at event industry news. Maybe there needs to be a monthly event industry news crossword. Maybe that's something that old school, a digital crossword. Um, uh, my thanks to both of our guests today. And before we wrap uh, up, just a reminder that if you are listening to this uh, via your favorite podcast platform don't forget that you can head over to the eventindustrynews.com website there are video versions of all of our podcasts so please do go over and, and give those a watch if you've got time and whilst you're on the website of course there are the latest news features special supplements on the event industry news website as well as the a to z supplier directory if you are an event organizer a professional working in the industry and you're looking for a particular product or service the a to z supplier directory on event industry news 
Com is no doubt the place to go. Of course, if you've gone to the website first of all today in order to watch this podcast, a reminder that you can go in the opposite direction. All of our podcasts are available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts from, which brings us neatly and nicely to the end of today's episode. And the final thing that I should say today, which we've already said, but I'm going to repeat it anyway, is a very happy birthday to Clusivity, uh, the organisation that both of my guests are from today. Uh, Mira and Andrew, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Good luck with the report um, and and best of success for the future. And I hope to speak to you again on the podcast further down the line when the next report comes out and let's see where we are and see what progress is being made. Thank you to you both. Thank you ever so much, James. Thanks, James. No problem at all. And we'll see you all on the next edition of the Event Industry News podcast. Goodbye, everybody. Mm-hmm.